When I met with you in February, and again, when I updated you six months ago, I indicated we were in the midst of an inflation paradigm shift. I believe that is still the case as the evidence continues to accumulate supporting this thesis. In this discussion, I'll provide an outlook on my views on inflation, monetary policy, recession, and what it all means for asset allocation. So let's start with inflation. Across developed markets, I believe we have now seen the peak of temporary or near-term inflation pressures in 2022, largely on the back of commodity prices in energy and food complex, as well as in the core inflation indices that exclude energy and food. I do think we will see inflation rates subside through 2023 and end the year in the United States, for example, with core CPI below 4%, but not yet at 2%. Now, the key items to watch over the next year will be shelter cost and wages. Shelter is very important in the United States because over 40% of the core CPI index is comprised of the cost of shelter. And again, be careful here. This is not the cost of buying a home. This is basically the cost of consuming shelter, which you could think of as rent, often known as owner equivalent rent or rent of a primary residence. Now, importantly, we know that rental inflation has decelerated quite sharply in the United States over the last nine months, but it is still running at levels that are well above pre-pandemic levels. Where we used to have 4% shelter inflation, we're still running at 8 to 10% inflation on new leases of apartments and homes. And that data we know has a lagged entry point into the consumer price index. So we know that the problem is getting better, but it's still a problem. And in my view, we're likely to see shelter inflation into the early part of 2023, running at levels that are well above historical levels, contributing 25 to 35 basis points each month to core inflation. Now, the reason that's important, as you look through the first quarter of 2023, even if there is zero inflation in every other component of the core CPI index, if shelter inflation is adding 25 to 35 basis points to the overall core CPI, that implies a core CPI of three to four and a quarter percent, again, assuming nothing else has any inflation, which is an unrealistic expectation. Now, looking beyond shelter, I said wages are important. That's because labor comprises 50%, over 50% of the cost of goods sold in the United States. The November employment report showed that the U.S. created 263,000 new jobs in the month and has created a like amount over the prior three months. To give you context, to keep up with population growth, the U.S. labor market needs to grow by well under 100,000 jobs per month. In fact, if you look back over many years, 263,000 jobs in a single month is a spectacular amount of job growth. Put a different way, the Fed has already raised rates 375 basis points as of the beginning of December, and yet the economy is still firing on all cylinders. So it's really critical to watch the labor market, watch those monthly job numbers, and to also watch the job opening numbers from the JOLT survey relative to the number of unemployed people. And what you see right now in the US is 1.7 unfilled jobs for every unemployed worker. Again, for context, late in 2019, before the pandemic, when the US unemployment rate was near full employment, we had 0.9 unfilled jobs per unemployed person. In other words, we have twice the tightness in the labor market on that metric at this point. Now, looking beyond 2023, I said before, I think we're in the midst of an inflation paradigm shift, and it's really driven by two primary themes. One is the reconfiguration of global supply chains. The second is climate change. As it relates to the supply chains, 
We've learned over the last number of years that we've seen supply chains have become too fragile and too extended as companies relied on a just-in-time approach to supplies. I believe we're going to pivot from just-in-time to just-in-case, which implies more redundancy of supply chains, closer production to the end consumer, not necessarily onshoring, but perhaps friendshoring, where the geopolitical tensions between the US and China play out through supply chains, and where companies realize they're just too vulnerable to any disruptions by having far-flung networks of supplies around the world. Now, importantly, from 2000 to 2019 in the United States, inflation for goods, excluding food and energy, was 0% for the full 19-year period. This was a once-in-a-lifetime globalization dividend that was enjoyed by consumers and, frankly, companies and investors as Mexico, Canada, and the United States signed NAFTA in 1994 to allow a North American free trade zone, and then with China's accession to the WTO in the early 2000s that led to a, a further extension of these supply chains. I believe that period is behind us definitively and that goods inflation will now be higher. The question is how much higher, not whether it's higher. Now, keep in mind, by the way, during that entire 19-year period with 0% goods inflation, services inflation was 3%. So when I look at the next three to five years, I think we will see inflation decelerate over the next one to two years, but then re-accelerate as the structural pressure of supply chains marries up with my second theme, which is climate change. When I look at climate change, we as societies, countries, companies, and consumers are going to spend trillions of dollars per year on adapting to and mitigating climate change. This to me is the definition of inflation as we will spend this money not to get incremental goods or services, but to hopefully just preserve the standard of living we've become accustomed to. Now, by the way, that does not even take into account the increased costs that are gonna result from more frequent and extreme climate volatility around the world in the form of floods, droughts, and heat waves. So I think these structural drivers are critical as we think about the future for investments. And as it relates to monetary policy, despite the signs of deceleration, as I already mentioned, the US labor market continues to be too strong. When I think about what the Fed is likely to have to do, I expect to see the Fed funds rate increase to levels perhaps over 5%, perhaps even as high as 5.5% to 6%. Now, that is an out of consensus view. The market is currently pricing in a terminal rate on the Fed funds of 475 to 5% by May of 2023. I don't argue too much with 475 to five versus 525 to five and a half, but I do think the other thing the market is getting wrong is the market is assuming that the Fed stops below 5% and then by the end of next year has cut rates at least 50 basis points. I believe the Fed is likely to take rates higher, maybe on the margin 25 to 50 basis points, but is also likely to keep rates higher after it gets to that point. The Fed will need to see that the labor market is under control that inflation throughout the system is under control before it starts to think about removing, uh, removing the tightening or stimulating the economy on the margin. Now, as it relates to Europe, by the way, so far I've talked primarily about the US. In Europe, the inflation problem has primarily been related to supply side issues, obviously driven by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and gas and food price spikes. I think in Europe, this is largely supply side, but what we look at the, when we look at the HICP, the Harmonized Index of Consumer Prices, which is basically the CPI for Europe. If we look down a couple of levels, over 60% of the components of, infl of the inflation index in Europe have had inflation of over 4% in the most recent report. 
This says to me that maybe those supply issues are now becoming more systemic, which again will feed into the ECB raising rates over the months ahead, likely to a terminal rate of two and a half to three percent, which is in line with the consensus view. Now, what does this all mean in terms of inflation and monetary policy? What does it mean for recession risk? Well, my base case is that the US and Europe will have a recession in 2023, but I'm optimistic on this count that it will be a short, shallow recession. Importantly, markets are really having a hard time with this. The debt markets seem to be betting that there will be a recession, that the Fed will be forced to cut rates quickly. The equity market is still debating, is there a recession or not? And oh, by the way, if the Fed rates are coming down, we can sustain high valuations. But if it's coming down because of recession, then earnings are going to be much lower than people think. So there's a real challenge in markets where I think there's still too much dovishness around the recession risk. Now, when I look at recession, I said short and shallow. shallow. I've tried to think of systemic risk, and I can identify a few problematic areas such as leverage lending. But when I look at the size of the leverage lending market in the US or in Europe, it's far too small to cause something systemic, systemically dangerous. We've already seen the crypto implosion. There's likely more to go on that front in my view, but again, nothing that can threaten the financial system. The one area I think we should watch very carefully is residential real estate or real estate more generally. But when I look at housing costs around the world, I cannot find a single major city globally where residential real estate is not overvalued. Now, I say that in the context of mortgage rates in the U.S. that now exceed 6%, that used to be below 3%. I can see in certain countries like Australia and Canada, there's more pressure for the central banks to ease off on the tightening because of the implications for housing. An important reminder, by the way, in the United States, over 90% of mortgages are fixed rate for 15 to 30 years. So in the U.S., we will not see an immediate impact on payments for houses or on defaults. What we will see is an immediate impact on affordability of someone buying a new home or buying an existing home from someone else. I expect that to lead to home price depreciation over the next three to five years as house prices right size to financing rates. But in countries other than the US, I do worry about what might happen to residential real estate prices as a direct result of the hikes that have already occurred in monetary policy. Now, again, fortunately, maybe the silver lining here for consumers and companies is that they've entered this downturn with very strong balance sheets again. So I think short, shallow recession, don't see major systemic risk at this point. But I do worry that the magnitude of tightening required to control inflation and the recession that will likely ensue will indeed break some glass economically and in markets. Which leads to the final part. What does this all mean for asset allocation? Well, first of all, in fixed income, hopefully it's clear already, I think markets are too dovish. I do think we see higher rates for longer than the markets are currently pricing in the United States in particular. The US 10-year yield below 4%, in fact, below 3.5% to me, is not pricing the near-term outlook or for structurally higher inflation over the next three to five years. I personally think a more appropriate yield on the US 10-year would be at four and a quarter to four and a half percent, and do think we might see another move higher if inflation readings come through as I expect over the next three to four months. For equities, so by the way, in fixed income, one last thing. My, my view is I would be short duration and I would move up the credit quality spectrum in the fixed income market as I don't think markets are fully pricing these risks at this point. If we do see the US 10-year yield move up toward 4.5%, I'm going to be very tempted to extend that duration to move out the credit curve and to think about other assets such as emerging market debt, in particular local currency EM debt, 
that could be attractive given the yield levels and given the fact that I think the peak in U.S. rates is likely to nearly approximate the peak in U.S. dollar strength if we have not already seen it thus far. For equities, I'm looking at this market across the duration of cash flows of the companies in the equity market. I remain concerned, by the way, given my view of the recession, that earnings expectations are too high for the market in general, in the U.S., more so than Europe, but in both. I do think with interest rates below where they should be, there's also discount rate risk to the equity markets. And so I do think in the first half of 2023, it's going to be a very choppy market. The term VUCA, we've seen it before, but volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, I think we're definitely going to see the V part of VUCA with spades. And I do think it's going to be challenging for investors. It's going to be important to basically stick with our, uh, stick with our conviction, focus on the bottom-up fundamentals. I would basically be in favor of um, allocation to quality stocks in the market, which I define as companies that can sustain high returns on capital through the cycle on the back of competitive advantages such as networks, uh, brand value, low-cost production, and other characteristics we all look for in great companies. These companies historically have been able to protect their margins when there are periods of inflation, and they've also been able to enjoy economic rebounds when they occur. I would avoid the speculative growth stocks that are all about valuation and the terminal value of the stock because they don't make any money now and might not make money for years. Those stocks are most vulnerable to higher discount rates. And I also think the risk reward is unattractive in deep value cyclical stocks where the risk is recession, where earnings might be taken down materially by slower economic growth. One last category beyond equity and debt. Let's talk about alternative assets. Well, in an environment where with more macro dispersion, with more volatility, for the first time in a very long time, this should be a good environment for hedge funds. If you think about it, from 2009 to 2019, the last thing you wanted to do was be hedged. You wanted to be as long as you could be, and even better, to be leveraged. Well, hedge funds were a miserable place to be then, but this might be a better place to be now. The critical element is finding managers who can deliver on that dispersion and volatility. As it relates to the inflation protection, I would say infrastructure is going to be an attractive asset over the years ahead, given that pricing power, the ability to pass through price increases and protect the owners. When I look at real estate, as I've already suggested, there might be more risk in residential real estate. Commercial real estate could present some opportunities. Again, asset selection will be critical. And then last but not least, the flip side of that hedge fund commentary is private equity. From 2009 to 2019, what better place to be than a long levered asset, which is inherently what private equity is? I think in the years ahead, we're going to see lower returns from private equity. And yet again, manager selection will be critical as there is a very wide dispersion in performance, even in the rising tide market that lifted all boats over the last 15 years. Now, with that as a wrap, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you again in February at the Market Summit. I'll admit to me when I saw the title, it was deja vu all over again in terms of seeing VUCA. But I do agree that every VUCA cloud does have a silver lining. And where I see the silver lining in this case is there are a lot of opportunities for us to profit from these changes, from the shifting macroeconomic and geopolitical backdrop the critical thing is have the vision and the courage to act upon these insights in the years ahead.